This is a segment that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. I'm so excited today to be joined by Dr. Lane G. Tipton from the Reformed Forum. We're going to be discussing Lane's new book entitled The Trinitarian Theology of Cornelius Van Til. This is going to be the first in several episodes where we take a deep dive not only into Lane's book, but into the relevant discussions about Reformed Federalism and Reformed Trinitarianism. Dr. Tipton, welcome to the program. It's good to see you, brother. Emilio, it is a delight to be here. This has been put off for too long, and I'm very excited about this opportunity. Amen. And we want to give you as much time as possible because we've got some really important theology to discuss and hopefully to develop. But let's just begin in a very basic uh, way discussing your book. Elaine, why don't you just, if you would, brother, just tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, how did the book come together? And maybe even more importantly, what are you trying to accomplish in this book? Well, the book grew out of a doctoral dissertation. Uh, I wrote back in 2003 a dissertation entitled The Triune Personal God, Trinitarian Theology and the Thought of Cornelius Van Til. And then for some time I taught courses that amplified various facets of that dissertation. Some courses would focus on the doctrine of the Trinity, some on covenant theology, some on the integration of Reformed federalism and Reformed uh, Trinitarianism. And, and this book is really a kind of refinement and uh, an attempt to perfect the substance of that doctoral dissertation. And so it's most basic, um, the most basic thing I'm trying to do in it is set forth in a systematic and orderly way the Trinitarian theology of Cornelius Van Til and the way his doctrine of the Trinity bears on his doctrine of covenantal condescension, image of God, person work of Christ, apologetical method. And so it's trying to just give you a handle on some of the historical and theological influences of Van Til, and then give you a kind of systematic introduction to the deepest structures of his thought, which Van Til himself constantly said are rooted in the doctrine of the ontological trinity. Uh, that is so awesome. I know, because I'm a huge fan of, of Van Til, uh, but I know that your book is a is a fresh and new contribution to the discussion of not only Van Til's apologetics, but what I thought your book is, you know, why it was so incredibly uh, useful and valuable and why it's so important is because you're making contributions to his theology. Can you talk just a little bit about that aspect of Van Til, the, 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 the theological... Uh, uh, you know, the theological uh, importance of Van Til. I think most people know Van Til as an apologist, but why is his theology so important? Yeah. Well, that, that might be the thing that people understand the least about him, Emilio. Most people think of Van Til as the father of presuppositional apologetics, and he is pioneering in his apologetic. But he stands out in the 20th century, as perhaps the most robust Reformed theologian who tried to integrate Reformed, classical Reformed Trinitarianism, 
to classical Reformed federalism. And here's what his theology yields. I, if, if you were to ask, what's the most basic contribution of this volume uh, in its broadest context, here's what I would say. Van Til gives us a theology of the creator-creature relation, a theology of trinity, image of God, and covenant of works as foundational that stands categorically and distinctively over against medieval Thomistic conceptions of the creator-creature relation on the one side and modern Bardian conceptions of the creator-creature relation on the other side. Uh, Bruce McCormick and Joseph White edited a volume entitled, um, th this is off the top of my head, but something like uh, Karl Barth and Thomas Aquinas, an unofficial Catholic-Protestant dialogue. That's, that's, a, that's an approximation of the title. And in that volume, they agree that now in the 20th and into the 21st century, the two main theological approaches that commend themselves to people interested in robust Trinitarian theology are the theologies of Aquinas on the one side, Bart on the other side. My book, and I make this explicit in the epilogue, the, the book that I've written sets forth the distinctive contours of Van Til's doctrine of the Trinity and his doctrine of image and covenant as a comprehensive tertium quid, a third thing. Uh, a view that has a distinctive conception of Trinitarian processions, a distinctive conception of God's relation to Adam as the image of God, a distinctive conception of covenantal condescension, something not found in Thomas Aquinas in the classical uh, Roman Catholic tradition, something not found in Karl Barth in the modern uh, neo-Orthodox developments. And so, for the for for the listeners who who get the book, if you want to put it in context, you can think of it as Van Til setting forth. I'm going to change the language here. Van Til setting forth Voss's deeper Protestant conception in robust Trinitarian and covenantal categories in a way that helps you see its contrast and integrity over against what I'll call ancient errors or medieval errors in Thomism and modern substitutes and alternatives in Karl Barth. So the appreciation of Van Til as theologian really is kind of paramount and preeminent in this volume, framed in that way. Hmm. Now, Lane, as we think about current trends and, and concerns and what's going on today, you and I have talked about uh, the distinctive nature of Reformed federalism and the distinctive nature of Reformed Trinitarianism. I think when people hear those categories, they're a little bit taken back uh, that such things as, let's say, uh, Trinitarianism can be distinctly Reformed. Um, but, but honestly, uh, that's what drew me to your work, is that what I saw is that what you were developing was in fact that. Uh, yes, uh, obviously covenant theology is essentially synonymous uh, with Reformed theology, uh, but the doctrine of God, um, that might need some explaining. And uh, so how do, we, how do we put these two together again? in a distinctly Reformed way, where federalism is not just up for grabs, federalism is not just take it or leave it, and, and how uh, the discussion about the Trinity and the doctrine of God are inextricably tethered to that. How, how would you 
approach that conversation, especially in light of, like I said, current trends and concerns? Yeah, um, well, there's a nice volume by Brandon Ellis entitled Calvin Classical Trinitarianism and the Aseity of the Sun. It's an Oxford title. If you look it up, it's going to be rather expensive. Uh, but what he does in that volume is outline Calvin's developing of a unique, what he calls Calvinistic account of the processional relations within the Godhead. And the, the, I think the, the, the shortest way to put it is that when you think about the Son simpliciter in himself calvin insists that the son has his essence of himself he is simple he is assay his essence is not communicated it's not derived it's not there's not a fountain of deity that pours deity into the son that comes from the father but when you think of the son in relation to the father in terms of the filial relation he has his personhood only in relation to and from the Father. And that means, to put it as tersely as I know how, that Calvin was concerned to safeguard against the idea of a communicated essence. The Father does not communicate the essence to the Son because that would make the Son somehow passively related to the essence and the Father actively. Calvin was very concerned that that would lead to some species, some kind of, of subordinationism. Ellis's volume, I think, remains one of, if not the, finest historical explanations of Calvin's doctrine of autothea, setting it over against traditional Thomistic uh, views and um, also giving you a historical account of the way uh, Calvin's contemporaries received his views, the way Robert Bellarmine critiqued that view, the great Roman Catholic counter-Reformation theologian. And so there's something really distinctive about a Calvinistic doctrine of autothean personhood. The son has his essence from himself and his person in a filial relation, a processional relation of personal origin uh, with the father in view. Now, what I do in this volume is I try to develop the systematic implications of that in light of what Van Til has written on. And here's here's a here's a I'm trying to be as as generic as I know how to be without getting into all the details. But the the in what Van Til discerns and what I develop is that for the Reformed, uh, certainly Calvin, certainly Warfield, certainly Voss, and certainly Van Til. There is no communication of the essence among the Trinitarian persons. There is a, the, the, the Trinitarian persons of themselves are the undivided essence of God as distinct subsistences. And so just as there is no communication of essence among the Trinitarian persons, so there is no participation in the essence of God among creatures. And um, instead, what you find is an emphasis always on natural, religious, personal communion between the triune God and the image-bearing creature. Uh, Gerhardus Voss, in his Reformed Dogmatics to uh, 14 and 15, 
calls that the deeper Protestant conception, that Adam was created not as an imperfect, underproportioned participant in the essence of God, but he was created a natural religious personal fellowship with God. And, and so to set it in contrast to the traditional Roman Catholic view, not to bring Bard into view at this point, but for Thomas, just as the essence is communicated from the Father to the Son, so the essence is participated in creation. Adam participates in the essence of God as a creature in his exodus, as he is distinguished from God in the work of creation. But he's underproportioned in his participation. So what does God do? Well, in Reditus, he, he infuses grace. Traditional Roman Catholics call it the donum superadditum. Uh, to attain a supernatural end. And what that supernatural end of the Reditus is, achieved by grace, um, is a return to God as elevated above created human nature to participate directly and ultimately without mediation, intellectually, in the essence of God. And so the whole Roman traditional Roman Catholic system, the maxim could be something like this, um, the essence of God is communicated in the Trinity, and the essence of God in a twofold movement of exodus and reditus is participated in an ascending way by the creature. Van Til sees that connection, and and Bavink also sees that connection. I note Bavink as well. And they say no to that. They say, uh, Van Til especially, I want to keep Van Til focused here. Van Til says no to that doctrine of communicated essence, no to that doctrine of participation in the essence. And he sets over against it, Calvin's doctrine of autotheos, autothean personhood, no communication of essence. And then instead of this exitus reditus uh, scheme, where there's an ascending participation in the essence, Van Til following Calvin, following Voss, and on this point following Bavink, says creation's not a participation in the essence of God. Special creation's not. It's personal religious fellowship under covenant. And that that movement is from personal fellowship under probation to personal fellowship beyond probation with no ontological reproportioning, no raising above creaturely essence. Van Til is emphatic on that point, that second point there. Bavink is emphatic. Voss is emphatic. And so it's it's something so underappreciated, Emilio, that I suspect the listeners are almost blown away by it. They're, they're thinking, I never saw that. Well, Van Til did. Uh, Voss saw it. Uh, Calvin initiated it. And, and that really does start to turn up the fact that the Reformed and the Roman Catholics— the traditional Roman Catholics and the Reformed following Calvin, they only differ on the nature-grace relation. What, what is human nature in the image of God and what does that nature need to advance? They also differ on the nature of Trinitarian processions, and there are some systematic uh, theological implications of that that run all the way through the system. And this, in, in one sense, this volume is a bit of a manifesto to make people aware of that, and then further development down the road can, can continue. So it's, it's an incredibly important point, actually, and, and it's, it's 
it's uh, something I think this volume, this might be one of the unique contributions of the volume is seeing the way Van Til uh, following Calvin and Warfield and, and Voss developed that, that insight. Yeah. Oh man. So many, so many things to think about there. Um, it's remarkable how, when you think about what Thomas is teaching in terms of what you mentioned, the Exodus Redditus movement is really an eschatology and an ontology. And I think that is what people are misunderstanding is that it's one thing to go to Thomas for, let's say a certain Trinitarian, uh, you know, uh, thoughts or points or developmental issues in the Trinity, the processions and things like that. But it's another thing to think that you can go to Thomas devoid of his overall ontological scheme, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, but for Thomas, that's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that we just borrow from him certain points, let's say, on, uh, you know, the processions, the relations or the missions and yet at the same time not understand that for Thomas everything is coming back to this ontological uh, issue of a participated essence. Would you agree with that? Yeah, let me let me give you a couple of thoughts. Um, for Thomas, the Exodus Redditus scheme. Glenn Clary gave a great lecture on this reform. And, form and just for people that people that don't know what that even is, right? It's just it's just talking about man coming from God and returning to God. Yeah, coming from God in creation, returning to God in grace, uh, so that that grace uh, infused grace is necessary to enable the return to God, and that grace is ontologically reproportioning. But let, let me let me say this about uh, uh, Thomas, the. The Exodus Redditus scheme for man being uh, distinguished from God in creation, returning to God in grace, that is just uh, a, 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 an economic manifestation of what happens in the Trinitarian processions where the Son is um, in, in generation is in Exodus and as the spirit returns to the father, the the uh, the son returns to the father in ereditus. So, and Thomas is explicit that the exodus ereditus model of creation and uh, of 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 creation and um, the the return to God in grace is just an economic expression of a tr- of of a twofold movement in the trinitarian processions. So that's a point that Glenn Clary makes, I think, very well in a Reform Forum conference lecture back in 2018. And and secondly, Emilio, and I want to say this, I think this will prove helpful to listeners. And you can tell me what you think on this. I, I like to say that Thomas is related to the Reformed in a manner similar to the way the, the Lutherans can be related to the Reformed on a different topic. Let me explain. Let me illustrate. If you ask the question... When it comes to the, I'm trying to start with what's known and then move to what's unknown for for the pedagogical point. But if you ask the question, do Lutherans and Reformed define the doctrine of justification as the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness, the answer is yes. There's agreement there. The Lutherans believe that in justification all sins are remitted uh, and that in justification the righteousness of Christ is imputed. The Reformed believe that. Um, Shorter Catechism 33 is explicit on that. 
But when it comes to a theology of justification, there is fundamental difference. Let me illustrate. For Westminster Larger Catechism 69, justification manifests union with Christ. In other words, union is the more basic soteric reality, and justification manifests that more basic reality, is a facet or aspect of that basic reality. Um, distinct from it, but manifests it as the union is the framing context for the believer's justification. For the Lutherans, and I've lectured on this in various places, I, I think I put this in a book back in about 2007, uh, uh, Justified in Christ, Francis Pieper, John Theodore Mueller, uh, 19th, 20th century uh, dogmaticians, both of them say that justification causes the mystical union. Justification produces the mystical union. So it is first, and it is the productive source from which union flows. So fair, the theologies are fundamentally in conflict, whereas the definitions are the same. Well, let me use this as an illustration with Thomas. Um, and this is where Thomas is so helpful. Thomas is so much better than theologians like... Um, let me let me give some some broad examples. Then theologians like um, um, Bart or Dorner or Oliphant or Frame or Ware or Pinnock, a whole host. That's a wide. What I just gave you is a wide spectrum of of people who deny that God remains simple in His relation to creation. They deny God remains immutable in relation to creation. Thomas. When he defines the attributes of God, he says that God is simple, not composite. And I'm not talking about his method. I'm just talking about his, the definition. That God is non-composite and, and not subject to change either in himself or in relation to creation. Thomas on the one side, Bavink on the other, Thomas on the one side, Van Til on the other, their definitions of simplicity and immutability, you can throw Turretin in as well, they're going to be the same. So, so do we appreciate the fact that when Thomas is defining the attributes of God, he says that God is not composite, God is not changeable in his being or works? Yes, absolutely we do. Um, and, and, and we say that contra these Bardian mutualists, these biblicist reformed mutualists, and that is a contradiction in term, but that, that's to, to get, get the language of this new breed of, of mutualism that's out there among some reformed, a uh, small minority, but some, uh, the, the open theist, etc. Now, so, so th there is that, that agreement, yet when we ask the question how those doctrines function, in his broader theology of processional relations and the communication of the essence, how those attributes function when it comes to their participation, because the, the attributes are identical to the essence of God, and the creatures are participating um, imperfectly by nature um, and then perfectly by grace, ultimately into the uh, light of glory in the beatific vision. Um, there's a fundamental disagreement 
because the Reformed don't hold to a Pelagian conception of nature, don't hold to a sacerdotal conception of grace, don't hold to what Bavink called, regarding uh, the traditional Thomistic view of, de- of beatitude, a melting union. Uh, there's, there's a difference then between them when it comes to the function of those attributes within the broader frame of reference of the Trinitarian processions and the creator-creature relation and what that relation needs to consummate. Fundamental and profound differences. And I think that people miss that, Emilio. I think that they they can miss the nuance there and say, like, uh, I'm a robust uh, Vossian Vantillian. I'm not a Thomist. But they think that the Vossian and Vantillans will say, no, Thomas is terrible at every point, must be rejected at every point. It's poison. You'd think he's Pelagius himself. Not so. Not so at all. Uh, On the attributes, the the definitional uh, agreement, like you find with the Lutheran and the Reformed on justification, it's there. But when you back up and look at the system and the way those attributes function in terms of processions and that twofold ascending, I guess you could call it kind of threefold ascending participation, light of nature, light of grace, light of glory. Um, that's where the, the profound differences are and remain. And so, you know, I, I think if we can speak carefully and clearly along those lines, and I try to do this in the book, by the way, and I've I've got an, another essay coming out soon with Reform Forum uh, uh, comparing Voss and Aquinas on this and interacting with John Fesco's um, introduction to Voss's natural theology. I think the more we do this, I think the more we can actually appreciate the areas where there's agreement, but then recognize the system-wide differences from processions to creation, to incarnation, to sacraments, to beatitude, and because they, they do exist. And if we don't see that, uh, we're going to wind up blurring some really profound theological differences that will only harm uh, and not help. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we've taken we've taken some time here to talk about Thomas, and we'll obviously, we'll do a lot more of that. It's amazing to me how, because you've sent me some of your stuff on natural theology, and it's really, it's really uh, good. It's amazing how all these issues are intertwined. Um, but yeah. talking about Thomas, the other aspect of that, um, you know, we talk about the modernist path alongside of the Thomistic path, and I want to. So I want to talk. I want to talk a little bit about the modernist path, and then I want to get to this issue of retrievalism that I think is very relevant, very important, and some very pertinent questions I have for you there. But um, sure. if if not if not the Thomistic path, what I've shared with people is your options are kind of limited, uh, right? I, I think if you don't take Thomas's yeah. path, you're really up, you're really, your really other option is some species of modernism, Bardianism. Can you kind of flesh that out a little bit for us? What, what is Bart's proposal? How does it differ? Uh, how does it differ? And I guess in the level of importance, how important is it that we uh, I guess steer clear both errors, but uh, however you want to tackle modernism. Yeah, um, well, I, I call Bart, I think I do this in the volume, I call him the deeper modernist conception. Uh, Thomas is the deeper Catholic, capital C. You could add Roman Catholic, but it loses some of the symmetry. Um, and and in the introduction, Emilio, 
I note that Van Til sets forth a theology of classical Reformed Trinitarianism and classical Reformed Federalism over against all forms of correlativism or mutualism. Van Til's word is correlativism. Uh, James Dolezal's more recent word is mutualism. They mean basically the same thing. The idea that God and man share in some common reality, whether it's time, contingency, being, uh, whatever it is, the, the two are involved in a sharing of something that is the same. It's a univocal point of reference. Some people call it a third thing sometimes. Uh, uh, now, for, for Thomas, as I've just said, I call, I call that approach in the, in the intro what I call backdoor mutualism, that the creature has an ontological problem as created that requires ontologically reproportioning grace. He must be elevated above his nature and escape that finitude and participate in the uncreated being of God, enter into the essence itself, and as I uh, can d- demonstrate in certain uh, that essay I told you about, um, have a direct and unmediated intellective apprehension of the essence. It's stunning. Bavink calls it a Dionysian and Neoplatonic erasure of the creator-creature distinction. Well, that was a follow-up That's question. That's Well, that, yeah, that, that was a follow-up I had for you, Lane, is where is Thomas getting this concept of the need to escape finitude, right, to be uh, not advanced necessarily, but reproportioned, like you said, uh, is it Neoplatonic? Is it is it is it Greek philosophy? Where where is he getting this? Probably the best this concept. Yeah, the the best volume that I've come across. Now there are other good ones. Yep. But the mystery of union with God, Dionysian mysticism in Albert the Great and Thomas Aquinas, um, by a a a, a guy last name it's it's um, Bernard Blenkinhorn. He wrote this dissertation as a dissertation under Emery, who I consider to be the premier scholar on Thomas. I think he's stellar. And he notes that this is rooted in a kind of Dionysian mysticism that is also rooted in various ways in in kind of unpurged Neoplatonic thought. And so the, the Blankenhorn volume, that's a, 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 a title very helpful in getting a handle on this. And Jeff Waddington, I'm not trying to plug Reform Forum conferences, but Jeff Waddington back in 2018 spoke about this Dionysian background on Thomas, and it's a mystical background. It is, and, and Thomas mistook this, the Dionysian influence, he mistook it to be the, 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 Dione, the, um, the, Dione, the Dionysian mentioned in the Bible. And it's not, there's a seventh century difference. Thomas thought it was a biblical source he was using, and it's actually a radical form of unknowing mysticism that works its way into the deep structures of Thomas's thought, and in part accounts for the need to be ontologically reproportioned to attain that mystical vision and participation in God that is immediate, uh, unmediated, and direct. Um, so that's the back door mutualism. 
and mm-hmm. the Blankenhorn volume, very much worth consulting. Yeah. He's a true, by the way, he's a true Roman Catholic uh, who is working from the primary sources and doesn't have a retrievalist agenda. Uh, okay, so. But, but uh, Bart, yeah. Differ- oh, I'm sorry. No, uh, I, was gonna, fin- I was using no, him as a no, foil for your, Bart. Yeah, finish your thought on, on, on Bart here, but I did want to come back to front door and back door mutualism, as you mentioned in, in your book, pages 18 to 20. You begin to introduce this right. concept of both front door and back door mutualism, but finish your thought on Bart. Then I'm going to ask you a question about retrieval. Uh, uh, retrieval sure, sure. What's well, going Bart on is front door mutualism. Right. Um, front door mutualism is not is the uh, back door mutualism. The creature is ontologically reproportioned to participate in the essence of God. Front door mutualism is that God limits Himself. Reproportion, sovereignly reproportions himself to the mode of the creature and um, shares in, in Bart's language in a third time in Jesus Christ so that in Jesus Christ, God and man come together and share, participate in a third time. God's being is not eternally immutable. God's being is now qualified by a reciprocal, dynamic, historical relation to humanity. They're codependent. They're interdependent. Divine and human being are interdependent, primordially in Jesus Christ. So what happens with Bart in front door mutualism? God, as it were, sovereignly reproportions his mode of being to that of the creature. And Van Til, the the point I make in the book, Van Til refuses both moves. Van Til says God does not reproportion or modify himself to the mode of the creature when he decrees and when he creates. And he says God does not reproportion the creature to the divine being, to the divine essence, in the way that Roman Catholic theology presents it, either. So Van Til sees Bart's front-door mutualism as a modern species of correlativism. He sees the Thomistic back-door mutualism as an ancient or medieval form of correlativism. And he is saying no to both. And so... This kind of leads toward your, I know you want to talk about that retrieval question. This kind of leads toward it because yeah. either way you go, whether you want to to retrieve Thomas or a Bart mediated through Webster um, together or separately, you're going to have a problem with correlativism in one or both of those instances, whether you're doing just a standalone Roman Catholic retrieval or a standalone Bardian retrieval, or you're mixing them together, that's when it gets really unique. Uh, you're going to be compromising the integrity of the creator-creature relation by smuggling in some notion of God reproportioning himself to the mode of the creature, Bart, or the creature being reproportioned to the essence of God, what you find in classical uh, Thomism and Roman Catholicism, and Van Til is saying a pox, with Bavink on this point, and they're one and the same, with Voss as well, saying a pox on both of those houses. No mutualism, no correlativism of either variety. No, that's good. And when we think about 
the, the retrieval question, I guess a question that is emerging for me as we think, there's so much conversation today about the great tradition, Christian, classic Christian, classical theism, and, and things like that. Would it be too much, uh, would it be a stretch, or would, would I be incorrect to say that what, what, what people on that side of things are almost saying is that, well, Reformed theology is not enough. And that unless we, uh, unless we situate all of our Reformed thought within the greater classical tradition, uh, it's almost like what they're saying is that we have an incomplete picture of God. Um, what do you think of that? I don't want, I don't well, want to say it's a virtual I'm... Gnosticism, but it almost amounts to this, this view that uh, for the Reformed, the Reformed is not enough. Yeah, I, I, I wrote about, I don't know, five years ago um, for for a New Horizons uh, article, which I just love. It's the publication of the OPC that, that goes out to non-ordained folks. So it was a little heavy for that context, and I try not to do that. But I wrote a review of Voss's Reformed Dogmatics, uh, and here's the substance of what I said to introduce it. I said, what you have in Gerhardus Voss— is a dis- and and this is key brother is a distinctively reformed appropriation of catholic orthodoxy and by catholic orthodoxy i mean the ecumenical creeds i don't mean roman catholicism there is a fundamental baseline difference that protestants draw between the ecumenical creeds and the catholic lowercase c theology there and the nature-grace scheme of historic Roman Catholicism, exemplified architectonically by Aquinas. And I think that the great tradition, uh, when it's speaking of the Catholic Reformed tradition, I think there is fundamental ambiguity and an inability to define clearly where the Catholic Reformed differs from the Roman Catholic views of nature, of grace, of incarnation, of sacrament, of of beatitude. And and so I said about Voss, I said what you find in him is someone who wholeheartedly embraces the Catholic orthodoxy of Nicaea, of Chalcedon, and other ecumenical councils, but recognizes the absolute critical importance of the Protestant Reformation as a breach, not only with Rome's doctrine of justification and Rome's doctrine of authority, but with Rome's conception of nature and grace. Voss said, and this is so key, that the the Reformation is the perfecting and extending of Catholic orthodoxy even as it is the rejection and critique of Roman Catholic dogma. And if you understand that, this great tradition discussion can be put in a proper context. If you don't, then there's going to be great confusion, a great kind of fusion of Catholic creedal orthodoxy and Roman Catholic dogma. And um, just to use an example that I didn't put in this essay, but I do in this critique that I have of coming out uh, in a while for uh, on John Fesco's work. Um, Voss said 
that traditional Roman Catholic theology, whether it's Aquinas, Bellarmine, Trent, or Vatican I, he says they are they are dominated by what he calls a supernatural religious externalism. That's also the way that Bavink yep. uh, frames it well as well, right? He talks about a absolutely that the, he 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 speaks of Rome in the supernaturalistic view, and so absolutely that's what's, that's what's that, so important. That's that why nature, people, yes. nature, the issue of nature and the stuff you've been teaching and developing, especially your lectures on the Reform Forum, Lane. And bringing us back to protology, bringing us back to nature, grace. Uh, you said something in one of one of the points you made in, along your lectures um, that I think was so incredibly important, and something that if we don't get, we won't get anything. I don't know if that's an overstatement, but you said that what we're looking at here is two completely distinct views of nature, and that is so incredibly. Uh, programmatic, and therefore it is all determinative of uh, of this entire conversation. We can't get away from well, it. it. It really is, brother. In, in the in this, I have the the essay that's coming out. Um, it'll probably be out by the time you air this. Uh, we're what, what September first here. Uh, probably in another five or six weeks it'll come out. It's called the Deeper Protestant Conception of Natural Theology. Reading. Uh, Voss's natural theology in light of his reformed dogmatics. And what he does, this isn't, I didn't originate this really. I just, I'm excavating it, to be honest, and then presenting it in a, in a, as comprehensive a way as I know how. Voss says that what you believe about the natural relation, not that it can ever be isolated or separated from covenant, but what you believe about the image of God is going to be determinative of your view of religion. And for the deeper Protestant conception, there's an there's a concreated natural religious fellowship that arises from the creational image endowment itself. And the way Voss puts it is for Rome, religion can only be achieved by the infusion of some supernatural deifying principle that comes from outside of Adam as created. It's external it's supernaturalistic, and it elevates the creature above his essence. And so that insight, brother, I, in my opinion, that insight where Voss is distinguishing between what I might call the natural religious internalism of the deeper Protestant conception, image of God and covenant, versus the supernatural religious externalism of image and the need for that externally infused supernatural deifying grace he said that accounts for two different conceptions of religion so this is what's so exciting to me much deeper than just the question of justification or just the question of authority you have radically contrasting and incompatible conceptions of religion nature and covenant on the one side, nature, grace on the other side. Nature, covenant, deeper Protestant conception. Nature, grace, deeper Catholic conception. And I am developing that in part in the Trinity book, especially, I believe it's chapter 2, and developing it more in the exposition of Voss's natural theology in light of his Reformed dogmatics, and then um, challenging Fesco's claim which still startles me that Voss and Aquinas go together in the retrieval 
of a natural theology, a, a conception <laughs> of nature that w is ostensibly shared. Yeah. Uh, that for the, the the fact of the matter is that Voss and I think Van Til, but Voss especially, draws the sharpest conceivable distinction between traditional Roman Catholic conceptions of religion, nature and grace on one side, and the deeper Protestant conception, nature and covenant on the other side. It's it's remarkable no how penetrating Voss yeah, is. No, absolutely. And actually, that nature-grace distinction is hardly ever brought up. Like, when people really think about the distinctions between Rome and Protestant Reformed, that, that issue is almost completely out of view. And it's, it's, uh, it's too bad, because it really is uh, fundamental to I mean, two totally different worldviews that are emerging there, and um, yeah, that and and let me say this, Emilio, yeah, yeah. that's the traditional Thomistic view. Now there are some transcendental Thomists. You could have Camden on one of these days to, to talk about Karl Rahner. Karl mm -hmm. Rahner, I think, still holds to that distinction, but he cloaks it well, uh, <laughs> and and tries to 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 make it appear that that distinction is not there. But if you just talk about the old traditional Thomism of you know that 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 Bellarmine expounded and defended that Trent enshrined Pope Pope Pius V said that uh, that that the Council of Trent was really nothing more than the uh, reaffirmation and reappropriation of Thomas whose work stood forth prominently at the Council of Trent so so you know mm -hmm. Vatican II is a bit of a different thing but mm. when you're talking about Thomas and, and Trent and Bellarmine, this fundamental structure, this nature-grace structure, is so clearly taught, and people like Feingold and others, really, uh, Spisano and others, really make that clear. And yeah. we have, to, I think, if, if we would read the Thomists uh, who are not involved in a retrieval project, but just, as it were, card-carrying Thomists, that... That would come so much clearer, I think. So getting getting to Thomas himself and his best interpreters, who are Roman Catholics, yep. that's the path forward for us. And we shouldn't fear doing that. Well, with the time that we have left uh, just for this episode, I do want to transition to what I have entitled the Reform Path. Or you mentioned the Reform Way earlier, but... Yeah, uh, <laughs> but, but The Reform over, Path, yes, the Reform Path. <laughs> but, but all over the book, uh, I jotted down, this is the Reform Path, and on page 20 of your book, you, 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 bring, um, you bring up the Autotheon of Calvin, you bring in the Perichoresis of Turretin, you bring in the, the deeper Protestant conception of Voss, the personality of Bavinck, all of these things... Let's just spend a little bit of time there because this comes back to kind of full circle where we began a distinct reformed federalism, trinitarianism and eventually apologetic. Yeah. Uh well, I'm I'm glad you said that, brother, and um I do remember, I believe it was last time I was out there, you you showed me uh uh, a, a, a little copy of, of a preview I'd, I'd sent you, and you said, this yeah. is the Reformed Path, and I think you had that circled. <laughs> um, Car Carlton Wynn, a uh, dear friend of mine, uh, and just a, a fantastic theologian uh, uh, in his own right, uh, tremendously insightful, uh, he, he wrote, and I was so grateful for this, he wrote the foreword uh, to, to the book. Um, I hope I'm not getting that wrong. I hope it's not the preface, but I think he wrote the foreword. And um, he says that Van Til, 
was not a lone voice, but that Van Til really simply joined his voice to the 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 voice of Calvin in terms of autothean personhood, Turret and Hodge in terms of a robust reform doctrine of perichoresis, Bavink in terms of absolute triune personality, um, Voss in terms of this deeper Protestant conception, and there are others. And 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 here's the here's what I a thesis that uh, I'll put forward, and I I think I I think I use this language. But Van Til is the best retrievalist out there. Why? Because he is going back and retrieving Augustine. He's someone I forgot to mention. Retrieving Calvin. Integrating. Here's This is huge. Integrating the best of old Amsterdam, Bavink, and old Princeton, the Hodges, and Warf- Warfield, and Van Til. In the service of a distinctively non-correlativist classical Trinitarianism and federalism. He is retrieving the very best of the Reformed tradition and the very best of the Catholic tradition and integrating it and then applying it to medieval nature-grace dualism or medieval uh, Roman Catholicism, modern Bardianism, and carving out a very distinctive niche for Reformed theology and Reformed apologetics. And and so that Reformed path you're talking about, I think, is a proper retrieval project because you, you want to retrieve, this is the key, you want to retrieve what can be incorporated into the deepest Trinitarian and covenantal structures of your theology. You want to appreciate those who have insights that are ancillary uh, to that, and you can do that most certainly with Aquinas, as I've said, and others, many others. But the retrieval project, at its best, is a project that is seeking to take the voices of those who have developed uh, uh, in in throughout the history of the church a creedal, in other words, Catholic. A reformed, in other words, confessional, a, a, a Catholic reformed theology of Trinity, image, and covenant, and its bearing on the rest of the loci. Take that and develop that in terms of its interior theological coherence and integrity. And Van Til's doing that. Uh, and and what he he's the reason I think in large part following others, but he's the the reason in large part you can start to see the systematic incompatibility between traditional or classical reformed trinitarianism and federalism on the one side, and backdoor and front door mutualism or backdoor and front door correlativism. Um, it's 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 really I think he's been vastly underappreciated. Van Til, as an integrator of the very best of continental Dutch and English Puritan Trinitarian theology and then applying it to ancient and modern substitutes or alternatives. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And even as we approach his apologetics, which this, you know, hopefully our time together, Lane, will be something of a uh, intensifying uh you know, a set of episodes here where we kind of crescendo into the representational principle 
but that really is for Van Til uh, where he's going, and that's his that's his contribution. Uh, I think in the reformed path of the deeper Protestant conception uh, and and this entire uh, this entire way of thinking. So, uh, anything else that you would want to that you would want to say, just kind of as a just kind of as a outset to um, people that are going to pick up your book, uh, fans and critics alike, what you would want to say to people who pick up uh, Lane Tipton's book for the first time. Well, if if you're Reformed and you can think back to the first time you understood the five points of Calvinism, the first time you understood the sovereignty of God, the first time you understood the unity of God's covenantal relation to man, the covenant of works and then the covenant of grace, um, and, and you, you start to started to see all of these grand themes that flow out of distinctly Calvinistic and confessionally Reformed theology, what I'm doing is giving you a further integration of that old, well-worn path of Calvinist Reformed confessional theology in the context of Trinity and its bearing on covenantal condescension and its implications for the distinctiveness of your Calvinism, the distinctiveness of your Reformed confessional theology in its purity and its, its integrity. This book is a focusing lens that helps you understand why you're Reformed and not traditionally Roman Catholic, why you're Reformed and not modern Bardian, why you are Reformed and why you glory in worshiping this God as he's revealed himself in covenant and climactically after the fall in the immutable person of the crucified and ascended Christ. This is a book to help put you into a position where you understand why you're Reformed and not something else. And I hope it it serves that end well. That's my goal. Fantastic. Uh, next time uh, in our time together, Lane, let's uh, let's spend a little extra time talking about Reformed Trinitarianism, if that's okay with you. And uh, we'll continue to develop all of these uh, theological uh, concepts uh, in our next time together. So, brother, thank you so much for this episode of Christ in Kingdom. God bless you uh, to everybody listening. Make sure you thank like, you, share, subscribe, and pass this episode along. I know that it will be useful to you, useful to uh, people who are interested in uh, a genuine Reformed uh, federalism and Trinitarian theology. So until next time, God bless. God bless.